Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Yes, it's time to rejoice, because it's time for another Bible Geek. Uh, and uh, this is, of course, very helpful if, if one is uh, having trouble uh, falling to sleep. I, I found that my lectures and the like are always a great cure for insomnia, except for me. I mean, I, uh, you know, otherwise I'd be uh, dropping off uh, asleep uh, while doing them, but uh, I'll leave that to you. Um, I just got off the uh, Zoom uh, with another uh, uh, Bible geek pal over in London. Uh, it's part of that Jemmy thing I was telling you about, where you can uh, sign up um, to uh, to uh, talk with uh, me at uh, preferred length, uh, 15 minutes, half an hour or an hour, and uh, it's uh, well worth it, I think. I sure enjoy it, and uh, having a real interaction with folks. So if you'll uh, think about doing that. Uh, let's see, uh, what say we get right into some, uh, some questions, since that's what you're here for. Um, uh, Frank Frost in Kirkland, Washington says, I'm reading about ancient Mesopotamia, and I came across a theory that may have implications for the Noah flood story in the Bible. The Gulf Oasis theory suggests that the Persian Gulf may have been empty of water till around 14,000 years ago, and that it was a lush oasis where humans could have lived. If this turned out to be true, uh, do you think the event that filled the gulf could have been the flood that was later written down in tales like Gilgamesh and Noah? Uh, let's see, if the geek, um, I guess it could, um, there have been other estimates as to what flood may have given rise to these stories, because there have been several s serious floods, um, even without knowing about this. Uh, and all the um, critical approach to the flood stories requires is that you did have some kind of flood in the originating culture. There are flood stories all over the world, uh, but they uh, are, I should say, and they virtually all come from places on rivers, uh, which sort of implies the uh, the river flooded over and took um, the neighborhood with it. Uh, there's a big clue to this in that uh, in some of the Psalms we hear that Yahweh had tamed or shut in the sea, yam in Hebrew, and uh and also uh, the nature of Leviathan, the seven-headed dragon that uh, is, the, is an alternative version of the same combat creation myth. 
that's that uh, has this seven-headed dragon, which is based on the river Lotan. No, I'm sorry, the, the Litani River, L-I-T-A-N-I in uh, our letters. Uh, that was the origin of the dragon known to the Canaanites as Lotan and uh, to the Old Testament as Leviathan. And it the, um, the idea of the seven heads fits real well because they're the tributaries that flow into this uh, great river. And when it flooded, uh, that's the attack of the devouring uh, dragon. So uh, that kind of thing is is certainly true, it seems to me. Which particular rampaging body of water uh, it was, I, I think, is almost immaterial, but this could have been it, as far as I know. Which isn't all that far. And let's see, uh, Paul says, I am view, uh, I'm listening to uh, Eusebius, now free on Audible, and would love to get your thoughts on Simon Magus's followers, who apparently still existed in Eusebius's day. Was this a full-on religious sect? What do we know? Well, um... Justin Martyr, writing around 175, I think, um, he says that the uh, Simonians are the leading religious group in Samaria. And uh, if this is an authentic writing of Justin, and there are some, some apocryphal ones, uh, he ought to know because uh, he was a Samaritan. And uh, so he... Uh, he uh, definitely thought it was a thriving sect. Now, that's that's a good bit before Eusebius, but my point there is that it uh, it's not like Simon Magus was just some will-of-the-wisp uh, local nutcase uh, that uh, happened to get a mention in, in the Book of Acts. Uh, he does seem to have been a religious founder. Irenaeus tells about him and gives some idea of what he thought, uh, and what he believed and taught, and uh, there were uh, various uh, Simonians. Uh, Eusebius and others say that Simon Magus was the fountainhead of the Gnostic heresy. And uh, I'm working on something right now, a concluding section of my uh, book, Judaizing Jesus, where I go into the question of uh, was Simon Magus the historical prototype for Paul, as I think he was. And uh, there's, um, and if he, if Simon really was the the uh, progenitor of, of Gnosticism or of many forms of Gnosticism, you could count those. But apparently, overt Simonianism did last a good while. It was believed that uh, Simon had uh, gotten to Rome before Peter did, assuming Peter ever did. Uh, legends tell us that, uh, and that uh, he had great success there uh, and uh, was worshipped as a god. Now, I believe it's Justin who tells us that uh, a great statue had been erected of Simon in Rome. Uh, now, um, that was believed for a long time, but it uh, the discovery of the very statue he seemed to be referring to 
shows that uh, he probably misunderstood the inscription on the base and that it's talking about an obscure uh, Roman god, Simo uh, Sanctus or something like that, and that he, um, he he just goofed. But I don't know, was, was the um, idea of Simon's great popular success in Rome that we read about in the Pseudo-Clementines, uh, a fourth century work, but based uh, on earlier sources, uh, that you know, was that accurate, or is that part of the legend? I, I don't know how long it lasted, but on a thing like this, I, I wouldn't see why Eusebius would have fudged it. He 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 certainly was a fudger and a forger, uh, but uh, he, for some reason, and it's not clear to me what that would have been here. Uh, you could say, well, he was trying to reinforce his claim that that uh, all of the Gnostics were in sort of a heretical succession. And uh, if you trace it back to one guy, that would indicate it was something like Mormonism, that some clever hoaxer had, uh, had uh, created the thing and it uh, went... Uh, great guns uh, successfully. Uh, I guess that's possible, but uh, I, I would take that as, as genuine evidence of the widespread, long-lasting character of Simonianism. Uh, what finally happened to it if it was a thriving movement for some centuries? Uh, hard to say. It may have been stamped out along with, uh, with other uh, too well-known religious groups by Christians once they got into power, but this is just speculation uh, on my part. But it certainly is not unreasonable. It might well have happened, and Simon did have widespread fame. Uh, he probably was the basis for Dr. Faustus, uh, which, of course, just means that's literary longevity, but who knows? Okay, uh, now if you thought, uh, oh, yeah, okay, here we go with the different one. Uh, Alan C. says, recently I listened to a Bible geek in which you commented that uh, beginning at Deuteronomy 32.7, it was written that the supreme being, I can't remember the proper appellation, divided the people and assigned respective gods over each group. The people of Israel were given Yahweh. I don't remember the date of the show and also cannot find a similar discourse in either the New King James or the New American Standard. Can you please provide your source? Uh, yeah, that's uh, Deuteronomy 32, and I have a Revised Standard Version uh, uh, right here, so... And I was holding it upside down, so I uh, uh, thought I was going to open up right to it, but instead I wound up in the New Testament and couldn't read it, and then eventually figured out the error I had made. So in Deuteronomy 32, there is um, uh, this this old poem, usually the, the poems uh, in the Old Testament surrounded by prose are older than the surrounding prose. Uh, let's see. Uh, Deuteronomy 32. Uh, well, let's start from the beginning. Uh, 
Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the gentle rain upon the tender grass, and as the showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of Yahweh. Well, the RSV doesn't have that, but you can tell from the capitals that's the original. Ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and right is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because of their blemish. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus requite Yahweh, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. When El, uh, when Elyon, the Most High, uh, gave to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of men, he thick, you know, to different nations, he fixed the bounds of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. For Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted, allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. Yahweh alone did lead him, and there was no foreign god with him. He made him, Israel, uh, made, or Jacob, he made him ride on the high places of the earth, and he ate the produce of the field, and he made him suck honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock with fat of limbs and of, of lambs and rams, herds of bashan and goats with the finest of the wheat and of the blood of the grape you drank wine, but Jeshurun, another name for Israel, waxed fat and kicked. You waxed fat, you grew thick, you became sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominable practices they provoked him uh, to regret. Um, they sacrificed the demons, which were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come in of late, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that begot you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Uh, okay, um, actually, that's more than we need, but it gives you the context. It is think of the old days at the beginning when the Most High divided the human race into nations. Uh, how many are we going to have? Well, it's count the, uh, the sons of God so that each one can have his own fiefdom. Uh, each one will be, um, uh, an, each, each of the sons of God will be worshipped by the people in his district, which you certainly see in uh, the Old Testament. In uh, oh, uh, 
Second Kings, when uh, Naaman, the Syrian general, is uh, healed of his leprosy, he he decides, well, it was the God of Israel that that did this for me. I'm just going to worship him from now on. Uh, he says to the prophet Elisha, though, you see, this puts me in a difficult position, though, because I'm high up in the government and I always have to uh, go with the, uh, the, the aged, infirm king to hold him up. Uh, to bring him into the temple of Rimon, the the god of uh, of Syria, and uh, can you give me special dispensation to do this? Even though I'm going to be worshiping your god from now on, he says, "Yeah, sure, don't worry about it." Uh, and um, uh, when uh, Jephthah is about to uh, declare war on uh, who was it, the Ammonites or somebody, and he he puts out a peace proposal first to see if he can head it off. And he said they had a territorial dispute. And he, he sends him a letter and says, look, why can't you be content with the land Hamash, your God, uh, has given you and will be content with the land that Yahweh, our God, has given us? So you see the, the pattern there that uh, Yahweh was the God of this particular um, a piece of land, and uh, it's um, it's not like he was the only god yet. That would come later after the Deuteronomic reform, where they decided, well, you know, I bet Yahweh, our God, is Elyon. Although well, the Baal religion did the same thing. It had been El the father and Baal the son, but they combined them, Elyon Baal. Uh, well, before that, though, oh, and then they, they demoted the sons of God to be angels because they're trying to get toward monotheism. Uh, well, uh, the, before that, you have a, a story, the, this great story of the Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. Uh, and why was Elijah upset that, um, that Baal was being worshipped in Israel? Well, because Baal had no business being in Israel. He was the god of Tyre. He was Baal Melkart, actually another version of Hercules. And um, King Ahab had married Jezebel, a princess from Tyre, in order to make a marriage alliance with Tyre. Uh, and so he allowed, uh, Solomon did this too, right, in the stories. He made loads of marriage alliances and had all these wives because the idea was, well, if I'm married into their royal family, it's going to take a lot to get them to attack me. I don't think they will that way. And Solomon and before him, Ahab up north, uh, tried that approach, and they brought the worship of these other countries' gods into Israel and Judah uh, for diplomatic purposes. But the uh, Deuteronomic historians who wrote uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, they, in retrospect, thought this was a real bad idea. And, uh, and the idea was that Look, uh, these other gods exist, but there's not, they're not ours to worship. What does God say in the Ten Commandments? Uh, you shall have no other gods beside me or before me or 
whatever you want to translate. Uh, and, and yeah, why? Uh, because uh, God says, I led you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It wasn't Baal who did it. Uh, it wasn't Chemosh who did it. No, you owe me. Thus, I am your God and nobody else. Uh, so, um, that uh, that's why uh, they had it been Baal, maybe they should have worshipped him, but it wasn't right, and and so yeah, this uh, this really valuable fossil of earlier Israelite belief really sheds light on stuff like that. So that's that's where I got it, and and the, this is I think a conventional view now, a consensus view among non fundamentalist scholars. So. Uh, See, now, if you think I didn't have much of an answer to the Eusebius question, uh, I got to admit I'm even more at a loss on this one. Uh, this is from Thomas J. Payne, Ph.D. Uh, from He works uh, in plant molecular biology. Pretty impressive. Um, I'm writing you today on the historicity of Jesus. To me, the evidence suggests Jesus was a myth. However, many apologists claim there is abundant evidence to suggest otherwise. Many scholars like you point out examples like Alexander the Great to show the differences in evidence between plenty and scant relative to Jesus. My question to you is, can we do the inverse? Could you write a book about a, a per? I think it means can one do it? Uh, can one write a book about a person of history, a mythical character, or a yet undecided person of history that may be a myth that has similar amounts of evidence as Jesus? Could you use the same historical tools, apologetics, and guidelines, for instance, the criterion of embarrassment, and prove they also exist? If you think Jesus was real, then you must, uh, uh, you almost must accept the person or character uh, X is real. Maybe Romulus would be a good example, or some ancient Egyptian or Mesopotamian god. Uh, well, there are certain parallels where some people are very concerned to defend that King Arthur existed as a historical character, and they'll come up with the best matches they can find and say, well, okay, uh, they couldn't have had Camelot yet. That's They couldn't have been running around in plate armor. That's anachronistic, but uh, there might have been some Romano-British uh, chieftain uh, who who was transmogrified into the great King Arthur uh, could have been. Well, I mean, there's certainly a lot of Arthurian material out there in different languages, and and uh, those things like uh, oh, uh, I can't think of the guy's name, uh, Cratian something or other. He wrote. Uh, Man, what is the matter with him? I'm blanking out. A famous uh, Arthur Grail romance, uh, and uh, who probably got the material from hearing bards sing about uh, 
King Arthur. Or just or like today, you still have uh, people saying, hey, look at anthropology. It tells us that uh, people do pass on uh, historical or supposedly historical uh, national epics that are very long, but they can basically remember them, though that, that's controversial. I think it's often misrepresented, but they're trying to say, uh, you see, it's it's really not a problem. S similar thing uh, to what you're asking, that uh, Homer really did compose these things as long as they are. And many people had thought, well, one guy couldn't have written all of this, kind of like the Shakespeare thing again. It could have survived simply orally for a long, long time because similar things have happened today. So you're, you're arguing for a historical Homer there. Uh, but that that doesn't really hold water. It doesn't really prove anything. We, we uh, speak of Homer as a kind of uh, catch-all name for whoever may have written it, one or many. Um so was there a King Arthur? Was there a Homer? It's it's possible, but the, the evidence seems to be pretty sketchy, and the consensus of ancients that they did exist, that doesn't exactly prove uh, things. Uh, uh, the, um, the case of, of Robin Hood might be another one. Uh, Lynn Carter wrote somewhere that uh, Robin Hood meant bright strength of Wotan, and that he would have been very likely a mythical figure who was historicized, yet there are people that will argue Robin Hood existed. William Tell, now this isn't exactly what you're saying, but um, G.A. Wells in his great book, The Jesus of the Early Christians, he says, well, people take for granted that William Tell existed, you know, the William Tell Overture, shooting the apple off his son's head and so forth, because he's mentioned a number of times by the Swiss as a great national hero. Uh, but if you look at all of them and compare the earlier ones with the later ones uh, and relevant accounts of uh, Switzerland at the time he supposedly lived, it all kind of fritters away. There, there's no reason to believe this guy really existed, but many people think so based on all these accounts of him that, uh, however, don't really hold water. Uh, the same is true with um, the... Um, the uh, various Buddhas uh, that are believed in in Asia, uh, both Theravada and Mahayana, they think that uh, Gautama Buddha was a historical figure, though some Buddhologists don't think so, and I'm persuaded by their arguments. But uh, they they need to believe it. So the the Buddhists say, uh, I'm sorry, I'm skipping a step here. Um, it seems pretty apparent they've taken the story of Prince Siddhartha, Gautama Buddha, and just projected that back and said it had happened many times before, 24 times before. And it wasn't the same Buddha returning. It was different ones popping up at different junctures of history. Is there any reason to believe that? Uh, well, devout Buddhists will say yes, but Western scholars who do believe in a historical Buddha certainly don't think that these previous ones actually existed. Uh, but you'll have people making arguments that they did. Uh, there are people that insist that there was a historical Krishna or Rama 
and they have their apologists, but there's no way they really existed. And uh, the same with Moses. It, uh, he had the same sort of arguments pitched for him, but they don't really, uh, they're just remnants of apologetics. I'm trying to think of somebody that whose existence is generally disbelieved in that you you can imagine someone making an apologetic for maybe Santa Claus would be a good one uh, this is complicated because there was a Saint Nicholas of Myra in the fourth century and uh, supposedly he was a great friend of children and liked to give gifts to the poor and all that and uh, that he presumably was the historical origin. But was there, is there a Santa Claus who somehow manages to visit all the homes, at least of the affluent, in a single night? Uh, no. Uh, so uh, would you have people arguing that there was really a Santa Claus? He was Nicholas Admirer. Well, that's kind of frivolous. Uh, if you mean, did one inspire the other? Uh, yeah, I guess so, but uh, that's far from proving there there was an original, ho, 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 Santa Claus. Uh, so I, I, I'm sure they're better. Well, uh, we now don't believe there was a historical Osiris or Hercules, but some of the ancients figured there had to be and appealed to uh, mythical accounts as if they had a historical core to uh, argue that. Um, so that's not exactly what you're asking. Maybe there's a better example, and I invite somebody to uh, to uh, send in some ideas on that. But you're, you're right. You could have a kind of reductio ad absurdum. In the same way that uh, if you want to argue for the resurrection of Jesus, um, you can uh, mount the same kind of arguments for the the apparitions of the Virgin Mary at Fatima and other places. Oh, there's eyewitness testimony and so on, but come on. Anyway, uh, again, help me out on this one if you've got some better examples, folks. Yeah. Oh, this is uh, Laurie in Finland. Probably not going to get that one right. Uh, salutations. I've been listening to your podcast for a few years now, and I thought I'd finally send in a question. As a backhanded compliment, I'll mention that I often use the Bible geek to fall asleep. The podcast takes my mind away from everyday worries, but it isn't so exciting that it sets my heart racing. I quickly drift off to sleep hearing about the Pleroma or the Ecclesiastical Redactor. Anyway, my question concerns the Trinity and the, the Resurrection. How do they fit together? I was thinking about the Luke 23 passage where Jesus tells the thief, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, there's an obvious contradiction with the three-day resurrection timeline with this quote, and Jesus isn't supposed to be in paradise the same day. Unless, of course, you think in terms of the Trinity, where Jesus and Yahweh are the same being. In that scenario, Jesus has always been in heaven and is there waiting for the thief to arrive. But if that is so, what is the point of the resurrection? Is Jesus slash Yahweh, uh, if, he, if he was in heaven all this time, did he ever actually ascend to paradise? Did he actually even die? 
Is the whole resurrection story merely about Jesus coming back to get his body the same way someone returns the next day to get their car after taking a cab home from the bar? Ah, the best. Okay, sorry about that speculative Finnish accent. Uh, um, I don't do enough ridiculous, insulting accents uh, lately, but uh, figured I'd do one. Yeah, uh, Calvinists have addressed this with the oddly named doctrine of the extra-Calvinisticum. I, I don't know how this relates to the name Calvin, though it seems like it does, but the idea was, yeah, yeah, if Jesus Christ was the incarnation of the Logos, does that mean the Logos is otherwise, otherwise absent? Now, that's a good question, because the Logos, uh, going all the way back to, uh, to uh, Heraclitus, and then the Stoics, and uh, then Philo, the, uh, the Logos meant the principle of proportion that orders the universe and keeps it in balance, and so on, that ensures the regularity of nature, and such. Um, so uh, how could that be absent? What do you go to its office and it says, uh, there's a note there, it says, uh, uh, out to incarnation, uh, be back in 30 years. Uh, uh, that doesn't make any sense because then you'd have the, the River Jordan flowing up into the sky. You'd have uh, no gravity. Uh, Jesus wouldn't have been the only one ascending, right? Uh, darn it, I, I got to get to the grocery store. How do I get back on earth? That's ridiculous, right? Nobody thinks that happened. So uh, the this theologian said, all right, the the, uh, the Logos must still be in place. Uh, but uh, this, I don't know quite how they, they explain this, but he has a special mode of presence in the incarnation. Now, I think... I'm sure they have more to say about it than that because that just sounds like a, you know, a throat clearing. <laughs> That's what happened. Uh, but uh, yeah, there, there's a real problem there. But you're, you're bringing up a similar thing about uh, the, the existence in paradise. Uh, this is, there, there are two issues here. Assuming that Jesus, if you take Jesus out of the picture of is he part of the Trinity? Is he part of the all-pervading Godhead? Uh, that's, I mean, that's the extra Calvinisticum thing all over again. But if you say, okay, whoever he was, uh, the, the story, the official account is that he did die and was dead for a couple of days, a couple of half days, I guess, uh, and, and then arose and ascended into heaven. But how do you square that with what uh, Jesus tells the repentant thief? Uh, Today, I'll be with you in paradise. Well, this is clever, but I think implausible. Some say, well, uh, actually, the today, uh, that belongs with I say to you, I tell you. I tell you today uh, that you'll be with me sooner or later in paradise. Yeah, that uh, doesn't exactly work um, because uh, paradise is is the the uh, domain of the the righteous dead. Uh, I though it though if you believe that's if you believe there were seven heavens, this was not the highest, but this is sort of a holding 
place for, for the righteous who uh, couldn't go higher up until um, the resurrection of Jesus freed them or the harrowing of hell or whatever you want to plug in there. Uh, but uh, according to Second uh, Corinthians, when Paul ascended to the third heaven, it, he apparently saw the Lord there. Uh, enthroned. I mean, that's what I take the passage to mean. Um, because if if he just means that Jesus was in the realm of paradise, right? Paul doesn't say how many heavens he thought there were, but if he saw the risen Jesus in paradise, uh, that still doesn't get us out of the bind with the, uh, the thief, because uh, if Jesus is still in paradise with a thief and the righteous dead, years later, when Paul visited there, what becomes of the notion that he was raised the third day and uh, took his seat at the right hand of God, if that's in the seventh heaven, right? Oh, boy. Uh, and uh, so the um, there there is a problem there, but, you know, there's an equal problem between the various places the New Testament quotes uh, Psalm 110, uh, take uh, your seat at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And uh, I will tell of the decree of Yahweh. He has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Uh, that's uh, from uh, Psalm 2, but there's also an enthronement psalm. Well, the New Testament quotes, and there are several of them, of, of the, these verses, they seem to, to uh, assume that Jesus rose from the tomb to heaven the same day and then appeared from there to people on earth uh, for a longer or shorter period, depending on who you read. Uh, the end of Acts, or the, or the beginning of Acts, or the end of Luke. Uh, and if that's the case, you know, you, well, what I just say in the writings by the same guy, Luke, in one book, he's got him raised on Easter day after appearances. In the other, he's got him hanging around for 40 days. And there were other traditions that he had stayed on earth for 18 months or even 11 years teaching the advanced course to the disciples. And don't these stories where he shows his uh, bodily wounds imply that he exited the tomb and stayed on earth rather than just zipping up to heaven immediately. There's no consensus on this. And then you get into the resurrection contradictions as to who saw the uh, Jesus at the empty tomb. Did Mary and the other women, as in John and Matthew, see him, or did they not, as in Luke? Oh boy, uh, there's no uniformity on this. So yeah, it's filled with contradictions. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Why do I discredit this theory that uh, he meant, today I say to you, I say to you today that you'll be with me in paradise. Well, uh, there are loads of places in the Gospels where he says, I say to you, like, verily I say to you, uh, where they, they are not preceded by a superfluous reference. Well, when else is he going to be saying this to this guy, given that he's about to die on the cross, both of them, right? He must mean, okay, we're going to die, but 
I'll make sure I get you into paradise, the abode of the righteous dead. So there's no way, I think, to to get around that. Uh, people have tried for a couple of thousand years, but sorry, no luck. So thank you, Laurie in Finland. Um, boy, oh boy, do I want to know. Oh, this is long. But what the heck, I guess I'll uh, finish with this one. Uh, uh, this is from Kelly Reichert. Uh, hello, blessed Bible geek. In a previous email, I asked a few questions on the genetic fallacies associated with some passages in Scripture which you were kind enough to answer. I'd like to turn my attention to arguments that Christians make against verboten activities. Uh, and let's turn our attention to a highly controversial topic. I'm not referring to abortion, euthanasia, contraception, homosexuality, racism, but something far more sinister and nefarious. Yoga. The topic is so dangerous that an archbishop has devoted an article to it, which can be found here. Uh, short URL dot at, A-T spelled out, slash O-R-U, clash, uh, what am I saying, uh, capital P, capital V. I'd like to explore the problems of this argument and then um, ask why it is found compelling by so many devout Christians. Here's a passage from the article, which I've redacted for brevity. Uh, originally, yoga was not an exercise uh, in and re relaxation program. It was developed as part of Hindu spirituality. Hinduism is polytheistic, thus holding that there are many gods. Yoga is considered one school of authentic Hinduism. For some practitioners of yoga, it is a vehicle or tool to bind them to one or more of the Hindu gods. There are several major traditions of yoga, all of which developed out of this pagan spirituality. The most popular in the United States focuses principally upon physical postures and uh, and breathing techniques. Uh, the, uh, this could be a problem for Christians because most yoga practitioners do not know about the intent or motivation of their instructor or guru. The positions in yoga originally had a spiritual meaning. Several yoga positions were developed as a means of physically in inviting a god-slash-demon to be in union with you. Uh, I question the prudence of participating in yoga classes. Okay, uh, back to our questioner, uh, Kelly. A large part of the Archbishop's argument is focused on the origins and development of yoga and points out the non-Christian context of this development. Although I think it is helpful to show people the historical roots of yoga, it is used to tell them why it is wrong. This is a classic genetic fallacy. A convincing argument would identify what is said and done by Catholics in the here and now, which is opposed to their faith or violates commandments. I generally chafe at the, this type of argument because I've heard them for uh, so many things throughout my life. Halloween is bad because it originated as the devil's holiday. 
I don't know if that's true. Uh, the Easter Bunny. What's up, Doc? Is bad because it is a pagan symbol of fertility. Rock music is bad because the rhythms originate from African pagan worship. In other words, if the archbishop's argument is valid, then we have hundreds of other things that we need to add to the list which meet the criteria of pagan origins and undue influence. The archbishop warns that participating in yoga is a slippery slope. Another logical fallacy. He concludes by recommending a Catholic copycat of yoga and states that here you will find a Christian alternative with none of the risks, which seems to undermine his argument. He just spent several paragraphs claiming that the pagan origins make yoga a problem. If it can be sanitized so easily, many individuals will conclude they can sanitize their yoga practice with a few Bible verses and prayers. Yeah. Um, another interesting question is, why do Christians find this argument so compelling? It seems to me it is so similar to how and why people believe in Christianity. They believe that the faith was handed down through history and kept from corruption. They believe that Christ established this faith, and they believe that the Bible bears testimony to this faith. If an idea can be shown to come from the Bible, or tradition among Catholics, then it must be good and it must be true. They're very skeptical of the polytheistic themes in the Old Testament, the Zoroastrian influences on the Old Testament, and the influence of earlier myths on the New Testament. They desire the purity and the origins of their faith. This is why I see much of the religious endeavor as rooted in the genetic fallacy, clinging to a belief because of its origin. Why does my grandma believe Jesus rose on the third day? Because the Bible says so. To be clear, there are exceptions found among those who seriously engage their intellect in the faith, but for zealous Christians, the source of the belief trumps any evidence to the contrary. Let's say it's a geek. You know, this is kind of like when I think Harold Camping, but I know some, say that uh, Pentecostals are wrong to speak in tongues, and if you because they're new revelations, uh, and since the close of the canon, there can be none. So where are you getting these glossolalic utterances? Oh, could it be from Satan? Uh, and he, he figures, yeah, they are, and so you are opening yourself up to demon possession by uh, speaking in tongues. You know, I guess that's logically possible, but it's it's just uh, slipshod. I mean, he's basing this on a highly dubious interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13, when the perfect comes, the imperfect shall pass away, including tongues and prophecy and all that. Uh, what's the perfect? Uh, oh, it's the, the New Testament canon. What? Uh, it could be. You can argue for that. Uh, but uh, probably it's the second coming of Christ, given the way this language is used elsewhere in, in uh, 
First Corinthians itself, uh, I shall know as I am known. We see in a glass darkly, but then face to face. That's the perfect, would, one would think. But at any rate, you're going to use a possible toss-up interpretation of a word and a verse to say that speaking in tongues is courting demon possession? Well, it, it seems to me it's the same sort of, like uh, Albert Schweitzer called it, the the fragile, twisted thinking of Christian apologetics. And it seems to me the same sort of outlandish thing. And it's like, I'm not going to ride in a Volkswagen because inventing it was Hitler's idea, as it was, apparently. Uh, Oh, I'm not an anti-Semite by driving a... I'm not going to drive a Volkswagen... That might be taking it a bit far. Or in the 60s, some people who despised hippies uh, said, oh, look at that peace symbol. That looks just like uh, a symbol of the Roman persecution of Christians because it was an upside-down broken cross. So it was satanic, and therefore anybody that has the peace sign is branding themselves a Satanist. Come on. Come on. Uh, it's And as you say, it it, it just doesn't happen. Now, yeah, you might not like to, somebody, to, a Christian, to do TM because the opening uh, puja uh, calls on Vishnu. And, and you might not uh, feel comfortable doing that. I, I can see that. But um, this does seem to be a gross example of the genetic fallacy. Uh, and uh, it, it's just, uh, and as you say, it's just hilarious to say, well, we've got a, uh, a, a Catholic substitute uh, for yoga. Uh, and uh, what? <laughs> oh, boy. Does, where'd you get the idea for that again? Oh, well, from yoga. Oh, oops. Yeah, it, uh, it's just incredible. Uh, yeah, they don't want to say, like you mentioned about Zoroastrianism, uh, Mesopotamian mythology, and so on. They don't want the pristine origins of, of the Christian gospel to be sullied by uh, the idea that there were contributing factors from other faiths. The Eastern Orthodox Church didn't say quite this. They said that Greek philosophy was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and uh, and so it's kind of like another Old Testament. Uh, but uh, this is what Derrida calls the myth of the voice. Uh, it's as if nothing is behind the declaration you hear. Uh, it's kind of like in the baptism of Jesus. A voice comes from where? Well, from God. There is something behind it. But it's not spoken by any human throat or lips. It must be from God. And they want Christianity to be like that. Just a revelation discontinuous with any human source. So um, Christianity must just be revealed from heaven Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Uh, well, it's um, 
the motivation is obvious. You, you don't want to say that, you don't want to make it look like, well, this evolved from earlier beliefs. Well, apparently it did. And, uh, okay. Oh, here's one other one. Um, on my recommendation, Zach says the movie The Eye of the Devil was excellent. Thanks for the suggestion on one of your videos of Derek. Okay, and he says, I was just flipping through the Gospels and have been somewhat bothered by the fact that in the su supposed Matthew 12 rewrite of the Mark and original, the iconic phrase, the Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath, that this is excluded from Matthew's gospel. Growing up Seventh-day Adventist, I was familiar with this teaching. Was this too scandalous for Matthew's Jewish Christian audience? Even for the non-Sabbath keepers, the saying has a powerful humanistic um, connotation. Uh, this is a fascinating reminder of the often very theologically charged editing differences between gospel accounts of the same story. Yeah, I have to admit it is surprising that Matthew would omit this because this is almost a paraphrase of a well-known early rabbinic statement to the same point. Uh, you are not delivered to the Sabbath. The Sabbath is delivered unto you. Uh, and uh, that's, in fact, this might even be based on it. Uh, who, who knows? But uh, it was it was certainly something compatible with rabbinic Judaism. Uh, you would expect th that this would be in Matthew more than Mark. Uh, now, I I have just read about this and where whereas most of the writers I've been reading for Judaizing Jesus seem to say, well, yeah, this shows how Jewish Jesus' teaching was, but I do believe somebody had some ideas to why Mark omitted it, but I can't remember what it was. Uh, as for the... Um, the uh, point of the, the theological point being made in these edits. Uh, as soon as I get done with Judaizing Jesus, I'm starting on another book called When Gospels Collide, where I want to take a whole bunch of these differences and try to explain why they were made uh, to, in order not to criticize the Bible as full of contradictions, but rather to defend the Bible and say, these aren't stupid goofs. Uh, these are intentional uh, edits to make a, a point unique to the author who made them. Uh, and uh, it involves looking at the Bible a bit differently, but it makes more sense of it than, than either fundamentalists saying, oh, there's no difference, there's no contradiction, uh, on the one hand, uh, and it makes more sense on the other to say the, the militant atheist Bible haters are wrong to say, yeah, see, this one contradicts that one, it's all out of bunk. No, no, it's not. Uh, you, you need to uh, take a more sophisticated view, so I'll be trying to do that in when gospels collide. This, of course, is number four in my series of serious books with frivolous titles derived from uh, 50s uh, movies, uh, like there, the first one was The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man, then uh, The Night of the Living Savior, uh, then The Amazing Colossal Apostle, and then 
when gospels collide. If I think of another one, it'll probably force me to write yet another book. But okay, well, that's it for the Bible Geek today. Uh, I'll see you next time, and uh, I hope you will consider sending more questions and uh, becoming a Patreon supporter uh, of mine. Just look up my name on Patreon, Patreon slash Robert M. Price, etc. And I'll see you next time, whenever that is. Today I say to you, I'll be with you on the Bible Geek in some unknown date in the future. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.